All right, so this week we continue our journey through 3 John. In our series, we've titled A Culture That Cares. Last week, we looked at how the Apostle John was so thankful for his friend Gaius, or how his friend Gaius treated the outsider, the stranger, those that were sent, those that were called, but weren't known or didn't really fit in. Gaius treated them with respect. He treated them faithfully as a brother in Christ. Today, we're going to look at the other side of that coin. Our text this morning mentions a church leader by the name of Diotrephes, which is a fun name to say, so I put it in here a lot. But we're going to be talking about Diotrephes, where, where Gaius was welcoming and partnered with the outsider. Diotrephes kicked them from his church and spread malicious gossip and lies about John. Diotrephes has grown accustomed to power. He doesn't plan on yielding it, not even to an apostle. The title of the sermon this morning is The Fruit of Pride. It's not an easy text today, but if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to this text with me. We'll be reading again. That's 3 John chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. 9 and 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you, or if you prefer, as Julia stated, the words will be on the screens beside me. We read the word of the Lord this morning. 3 John 1, 9 to 10. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I came, I will, or when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells the story of a landowner who plants a vineyard. He sets up a, a nice, he sets it up nice. He, he puts a wall around it. He digs a nice hole for the wine press. He even puts in a watchtower. And then, as the industrious, the industrious landowner he is, he, he rents the vineyard out to some farmers and moves to another place, presumably to continue expanding his properties. As harvest time rolls around, the landowner sends his, his servants to the farmers, renting this vineyard. Part of their arrangement is that the landowner will receive a portion of the fruits that the vineyard produces. And yet, though this is the arrangement, the farmers do not receive the servants well. They beat one, they kill the second, and they stone the third. The landowner is, understandably, greatly disturbed by this, but sends other servants to the vineyard to collect from the farmers, and yet every servant he sends is treated the same way. <coughs> The Apostle John wasn't dealing with violent farmers, but he was dealing with a power-hungry church leader. The early church is growing. Church bodies are, are springing up, and with them, church leaders. As we talked about last week, one of those leaders is Gaius, to whom Paul is writing this letter, and another, as we see in our text this morning, is Diotrephes. 
Last week we read of how thankful John was for the heart of Gaius, how his friendly or his friend had faithfully treated the strangers, the partners in the gospel, the outsiders sent by John as brothers and sisters in Christ. And today we read how Diotrephes, another church leader, treated them, more like the evil violent farmers did the servants of the landowner. He turned them away and and not only did he turn other believers away from the fellowshipping in his church, he also gave the boot to anyone who wanted to support them. Why? Why would Diotrephes turn away fellow believers? John begins to answer this question in the first line of our text this morning. John 3, 1, verse 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, sorry, 3 John 1, 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first will not welcome us. Diotrephes, who loves to be first. Upon first glance, we may not struggle with that phrase so much. Who doesn't want to be first, right? I mean, I want my teams to try to, like, to win the Super Bowl or the World Series or the Stanley Cup every year. Aren't we supposed to be bettering ourselves so that we can do better? Shouldn't we be striving to be first? Isn't it important to push ourselves, to have high standards? Isn't it okay to want to be first? Whenever we pull in the driveway, it doesn't matter what vehicle we're driving in, when we open the vehicle door, there is a rush to be the first one in the house, which is silly because the door is locked. They can't get inside until Karen or I actually open the door for our boys, but that doesn't stop a few of our little men from making the mad dash across the lawn, up the steps, to the front door. And it started out pretty innocent. But it stopped being innocent when brothers got pushed out of the van before they were ready so that those behind could make their way to the door as quickly as possible. It stopped being innocent when feelings got hurt. It stopped being innocent when it stopped being a good-natured game and became a status symbol for the boys as to who was the best. Is it, or it is good to, to push ourselves. It is good to strive to be better. It is good to practice hard, but it is not good when we do these things as the fruit of our pride. If pride is what is motivating us, then it is not about doing better that we might glorify the Lord. It is about doing better that we might glorify ourselves. It didn't take long for Karen and myself to outlaw that particular game. No more mad dash to the front door, but we could just tell our boys that this was the case. John had to resort to sending a letter. For the boys had no choice but to listen to their parents, we read that Diotrephes had no intention of honoring the request of John. For he desires to be first. He desires for things to go his way. He's the big man on campus, and he likes it. And when he was confronted on it, when John called him out on it, how did Diotrephes respond? Chapter 1, verse 10. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. John isn't present. John's, John's far away. And so Diotrephes started spreading rumors. He started telling people lies about John. He, he twisted the truth. John says that Diotrephes was spreading malicious nonsense, right? M misinformation is a critical tactic when we seek to discredit someone. In about a year, we're all going to be so tired of political ads, the vast majority of which do not tell us what the person paying for the ad stands for. Instead, we hear vast quantities of dirt about their opponent. And we learn this misinformation tactic at a young age. We get good at twisting the truth so that it fits 
our narrative. And in that twisting, if it paints someone else in an unearned yet unfavorable light, so be it. Because we want to be first. And the truth is just another casualty in our pursuit of power and status. Not only did Diotrephes lie and spread rumors about John, instead of receiving the stranger like Gaius did, instead of welcoming in those that were sent by John, but strangers to him, Diotrephes kicked him out of the church. And then anyone that supported the people that John had sent, yeah, they, they got the boot too. Continuing in, in, in 3 John 1.10, not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Diotrephes may not have been killing those sent to him. He may not have gone as far as the violent farmers in the illustration that Jesus gave in the book of Matthew, but he was intentionally turning away, rejecting other believers in his pursuit of power. That his station, his preferences, the culture of his church might not be influenced by an outsider, but that it would be the way that he wanted it. Diotrephes had no interest in listening to others. He wanted to be first, better to belittle them, to lie about them, and to reject anyone sent from them than to jeopardize his position of power. And there's a part of me that shakes my head, right? Like, how could he be so blind? How could he be so selfish? How could he intentionally and willingly do so many things that he knows go against the teachings of Jesus? How could he do all of that just so that he didn't have to change, just so that he didn't have to be vulnerable, just so that he didn't have to concede some of his authority? How could he be like the farmers in the book of Matthew? Doesn't he know that story? You see, Jesus was telling that story to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law, and and they were having a, a similar problem to Diotrephes. They'd been the top dog. Everyone danced to their tune. They were the most influential people in the Jewish culture at the time. And in his story, Jesus is calling them murderous farmers. Jesus tells the story to point out that the Pharisees did not come up with the Jewish faith. They were put in authority to serve and to guard what God had already established. The vineyard that he had planted, the faith of his people. But they had fancied themselves as leaders. They had gotten comfortable. They had authority. They had control. And when God sent his prophets, when he sent John the Baptist, when they were reminded that the vineyard did not belong to them, they responded in shameful, disgraceful, and violent ways. And so did Diotrephes. And as much as we may not like to admit it, so do we, don't we? I didn't like asking myself the question, it wasn't something that I cherished, but sitting in my chair in my office this week, working through the text, I had to ask myself, in what ways am I Diotrephes? I think it's a lot easier for us to pick out others that remind us of him than it is to see his sins reflected in our own lives. We prefer to see it in someone else, right? Like, like anyone else. The person that disagrees with us. The person that is so stubborn. The person that is exclusive. The one that can't get over the past. The one who insists on change after change. The one who wants it their way. The one who doesn't welcome new people. The one who is aggressive with those that disagree with or challenges them. Yeah, we prefer to pick out the traits of diatrophies in, in someone else. That way we can still tell ourselves that this sermon, this text, is, is for them. It's for those guys. And that we don't have to admit to the truth and reality that we also, at times, share his failings. 
Because we do share the failings of Diotrephes, don't we? Do we love to be first? Do we seek recognition and acclaim? Do we do the things that we do so that others will know of our abilities, so that others will respect us more, or listen to what we have to say? Do we have an agenda that serves our purposes over or instead of the purposes of Christ? Do we love to have things our way, the way that makes us feel comfortable, the way that makes us feel better or good? Maybe that's the way it's always been, or, or maybe it's something new. doesn't matter, as long as it's the way that we like it, right? What lengths are we willing to go to in our stubbornness? Do we spread rumors? Do we gossip and tear down? Do we share malicious nonsense about the people that we struggle with? Maybe it's the people that have called us out. Maybe it's the people that have called us to repentance. Maybe it's the people that are challenging our comfort zones, that are stretching us in ways that we're just not that excited about. How do we respond? Do we attack them in the ways a good Christian attacks? Not with a fist to the face, but with poisonous words dipped in honey and spread to as many ears as possible. Do we respond to elements we're uncomfortable with that we don't like? That, or how do we respond to elements that we're uncomfortable with that we don't like that challenge us in our station? Do we act like diatrophies and push them away? Do we refuse to welcome people and ideas that challenge us along with those that support them? And if we are like diatrophies, we know that in some ways, in our own ways, we are also like the murderous farmers in the vineyard. God has called us to his mission. He has put us in the field. He's given us life, made us in his image. He's put us in the churches that we attend, in the towns that we live in, and he's called us, each of us, to labor in the vineyards of ministry, each in our own way. Because honestly, all of that belongs to him. All of it belongs to him. And then when he comes to see how things are going, when he sends others, when he sends his spirit to continue to shape the way that we live, to mold our hearts and the ministry that we're involved in, in our sinfulness at times, we reject him. Not always. Not every time. Maybe not even often. But there are times each of us push back against how God is working in our lives and the ministry, the life that he is calling us to. There are times when we just want to do it our way. When we want to be first, and so we reject the good teaching, the healthy instruction, the difficult changes that the Lord brings into our lives. We prefer to guard what we have. We like it the way that we are, and so in doing, we hurt our God. We don't see more of diatrophies in the Bible. We don't know how the showdown or what that showdown with John looked like and if and when it happened. We do, however, know that the story with the treacherous farmers ended. Jesus tells the Pharisees that after sending all of those servants to collect from the farmers, the landowner decided to send his own son, for surely the farmers working his fields would recognize, respect, and listen to his heir. Instead, when the farmers recognized the landowner, or who the landowner had sent, they decided to kill him, with the intention of forcefully gaining the son's inheritance and keeping the vineyard to themselves. Jesus asked the Pharisees, what they think the landowner will do. The teachers of the law respond, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and he will rent the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. To which Jesus responds, have you never read in the scripture the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The text then tells us that the Pharisees recognized that the parable was about them, and they looked for ways to arrest him. It doesn't look good for us, does it? It doesn't look good for me. As we recognize that at times we are the wretched farmers. It didn't end well for them. How could it possibly end well for us? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus didn't randomly quote from Psalm 118. So let's go back and take a look at the context of what Jesus is saying here. We'll read verses 19 to 24. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The cornerstone that the builders rejected is also the gateway to salvation. And the righteous shall enter through it. Jesus gives the believer the hope we need while convicting those that do not have faith. For he is the landowner's son. And he was sent to us, sent to earth, sent to live in this mortal plain. He left the utopia of heaven to come and live among us in this broken world full of suffering. And he ate with us and he hungered with us. He scraped his knees and he got blisters on his feet. He taught us. He healed us. He cast out our demons. He invested in us. He proclaimed truth to us. We hated him for it. Diotrephes, the farmers, we made our move. And so he was betrayed, convicted, and sentenced to death on a cross. And as he carried those timbers up that hill to Calvary, he carried with them the sins of the world. Every time we've wanted to be first. Every time we've been prideful and selfish, every time we've attacked others with poisonous, honey-covered words, every time we've resisted his call, every time we've been rude and hurtful to our fellow believer, every time we've disobeyed God, every time we've tried to do it our own way, every sin that has ever been committed was put upon him. And the Bible tells us that there on the cross, he became sin for us. That's how much the son of the landowner the one that we have betrayed, that's how much he loves us, that he was willing to take our place on that cross and pray the, pay the price that we could not. He paid the price for sin, our sin, the Pharisees' sin, Diotrephes' sin. He paid the price for all sin, for all time. For there on the cross, the sinless one, the one who did not earn it, the landowner's son relinquished his spirit and died for us and in our place. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. In church, the gates of salvation were opened for anyone who believes. For any who build their life on the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders, their hope is secure. For through faith in Jesus, we are saved. Through faith in Jesus, we live in the fruits of forgiveness. Through faith in Jesus, the Bible tells us that the dirty rags of our sins are taken from us and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Through faith, we are brought into the family of God and called heirs with Jesus. All of this through faith. So though at times, 
At times we are Diotrephes, and though at times we are the wicked tenants. When we repent, when we rest in the faith that God has given us, when we believe in Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness, we are forgiven of those sins. Our hope is secure in the cornerstone of our faith, the true foundation of belief, Jesus Christ. And so church, may God convict us of when we are being Diotrephes. May he remind us of the wicked tenants when we are pushing him away and seeking to be sinful. And may we as a church build a culture that does not seek to glorify self, that does not seek to be first, that does not seek to make it all about us and the ways that we used to do it or the ways that we want to do it, but will instead seek the kingdom of God. May we strive for excellence. May we push ourselves to be better, better singers, better teachers, better neighbors, better trustees, better elders, better congregants, a better pastor. But may the growth we experience not be a matter of pride, but another avenue of giving, giving glory to our God. May we continue to build and develop a culture that seeks to join Jesus in his mission and not try to freeze each other out of it. May we encourage instead of discourage. May we build a culture that resists rumors and gossip. May we build a culture that is welcoming to believers and those that are not yet believers. May we be humble and yet firm in the mission that God has called us to join him in. And he has called us, church. Let us rejoice in that. No matter what you have done, no matter where you have slipped and fallen and messed up, God loves you. And Jesus died for you, and there is forgiveness to be had when we believe in the church's one foundation. What a fantastic, gracious, merciful, and powerful God we serve. Amen.